I read all the best Bitcoin content out there so that you can listen. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read with Guy Swan. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the Crypto Economy. I'm Guy Swan, and we are starting into part two of Hugo Quinn's uh, Proof of Stake series and breaking down uh, the the limitations and or trade-offs that Proof of Stake has to make in order to get consensus and the differences between the Proof of Work and Proof of Stake systems. And in addition, I may have a, when we get to the commentary, I may have a clarification slash correction from something I said yesterday in the commentary, but we will get to that. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into part two, and then we will uh, dig into some of this stuff in the commentary. This one is titled, Proof of Stake, Private Keys Attacks, and Unforgeable Costliness, The Unsung Hero. In my previous article, I discussed how proof-of-stake is less resilient than proof-of-work in dealing with worst-case scenarios. In this article, I want to expand on worst-case scenario number three, private keys attacks. There are two types of private keys attacks, old private keys attacks and current private keys attacks. 1. Old private keys attack. Earlier versions of proof-of-stake typically employed a fixed validator set. This means that users who sold their stakes at some point in the past can still participate in the validation process in the future. In proof-of-stake, validating is equivalent to block minting. This is a huge loophole since there's a lot of money to be made for anyone who gets a hold of these outdated keys by rewriting history while there is zero downside. This is also known as the nothing-at-stake problem. To address this issue, newer versions of proof-of-stake use dynamic validator sets and or checkpoints. The idea is to revoke the right of past stakeholders to participate in future validation. However, even with these measures in place, proof-of-stake protocols can't completely make the problem go away two types of nodes are still particularly vulnerable. A. New nodes who just joined the network, and B. Long dormant nodes. Since these nodes either start with a blank memory or have a huge gap in their memory, they would have trouble detecting that some stakeholders already sold their coins on the real chain when they weren't online. Some proof-of-stake proponents will be quick to point out that similar problems exist for new nodes in proof-of-work, so it's an acceptable problem. This argument is highly misleading. While it's true that new users in a proof-of-work system do need to trust someone in order to download the correct version of the software and to bootstrap peers, the trust doesn't extend to choosing which chain is valid. Second, and more importantly, once the proof-of-work node software has been downloaded, it's reasonably safe for the proof-of-work node operator to turn off the node for an arbitrary amount of time. Past the bootstrapping stage, proof-of-work is highly permissionless. Nodes can come and go whenever they like. 
The only exception to this is in the event of hard forks, which require the node operators to repeat the bootstrapping process. Another reason hard forks should be used very judiciously and avoided if possible. In contrast, a proof-of-stake node operator, even with the correct software downloaded, will regularly need to reach out to trusted third parties to ensure he stays on the canonical chain. The fear of losing contact with the main network and getting tricked onto the wrong chain will continue for eternity, possibly long after the trusted third parties cease to exist. This marks a significant degradation in security. All proof-of-stake protocols suffer from this fundamental problem. 2. Current private keys attack. In the second type of attack, the keys are current, which means that neither dynamic validator sets nor checkpoints would help. In fact, automatic checkpoints would exacerbate the problem by making unresolved splits permanent. How it works. An attacker who gains access to private keys that control at least a third of the coin supply will easily be able to create two equally valid blocks of the same height, with neither block appearing more correct to the rest of the network, effectively creating a chain split. This is already a deal breaker for the majority of proof-of-stake protocols, since they are forced to halt operation if the two-third plus honest majority threshold is not met. No block can be finalized for any given round. The proof-of-stake chain will stop dead in its tracks. The ability to guarantee continued operation is known as the liveness property. A closer look at a few proof-of-stake implementations. 1. Tendermint Tendermint acknowledges the above shortcoming and concedes that in the event of the protocol getting stuck, users have to go out of band to reach consensus. Quote, a subset of the validators through external means should coordinate to sign a reorg proposal that chooses a fork, end quote. The honesty is laudable, but I wholeheartedly disagree that this, quote, solution is a solution at all. Increased reliance on manual human intervention means that the protocol is less scalable and more easily corruptible. It is far from the kind of robustness that we should aim for in designing critical infrastructure-level software. This is fundamentally a problem of mindset, as I discussed in my previous article. 2. Casper Casper can also get stuck if an adversary controls more than one-third of the stake. Casper introduces the problematic concept of inactivity leak where nodes get penalized for the mere crime of going offline. Whether you're intentionally going offline to cause harm or not, it doesn't matter. This is a super perverse rule because A, it introduces a new vulnerability where an attacker can DDoS honest validators into going offline and cause them to lose money. And B, it potentially discourages nodes from staking for fear of losing money. This has a negative impact on overall security, since staking participation is extremely critical to proof-of-stake. More on this below. 3. Definity In Definity, a block needs to be notarized, read confirmed, twice before it can be finalized. An adversary with more than one-third stake could also stop blocks from being notarized and freeze the protocol. 
there are a few things worth pointing out in Dfinity. Dfinity introduces a mechanism that tries to emulate the weight property of a proof-of-work chain so that it can resolve chain splits, but without the backing energy. It randomly assigns a, quote, rank to each validator in a round via something called a random beacon. The weight of each block is equal to the rank of the validator that created it. Simply put, Dfinity's idea of weight is based on nothing but randomness and everyone agreeing on the same randomness. Leaving aside the issue of whether the, quote, random beacon can truly be implemented securely and in a decentralized way, intuitively, this is a flawed idea. The digital block has no real weight. All a block is is a bunch of zeros and ones. If it costs nothing to produce, it will cost nothing to forge or reproduce. The thing that makes the weight of a proof of block real is that there is a direct, provable linkage between the block hash and the energy spent mining that block. For more on this, check out my article on proof of work, link provided. Dfinity's block weight, on the other hand, is subjective and therefore can be manipulated. This make-believe weight would become meaningless if A, nodes ever disagree on the randomness, or B, the source of randomness malfunctions. For example, a failure to notarize blocks would cause the random beacon to stop. Overall, Dfinity security might actually be worse than Tendermint and Casper. The quote, threshold group, while a cool idea, represents only a subset of all active validators. K is less than N. Since the subsets are picked randomly, adversarial nodes could easily be overrepresented in some subsets and underrepresented in others. An adversary who controls a third of the validator set could have more than one-third participation in a subset. The attacker could further improve his odds by, quote, grinding identities until he gets the participation ratio he desires. He only needs to control some threshold groups, not all. Stake Participation So far in this analysis, we have assumed that the worst case here is an attacker gaining control over one-third of the total coin supply, which is hard, but not impossible. But in reality, the requirement for the attacker is much lower, since the attacker only needs more than one-third of the active stake. It's extremely unlikely that all coin holders will participate in the process of staking and validating. Let's say the rate of participation is 50%. Then the attacker only needs one-sixth of the coin supply in order to cause conflicting blocks or checkpoints, instead of a third. If the rate of participation is 25%, the attacker only needs one-twelfth. This is quite alarming because, as stated, wealth distributions follow power laws. A handful of the richest stakeholders could easily control one-twelfth of the coin supply. Low rate of participation in staking is probably the greatest threat facing proof-of-stake protocols. Another issue that exacerbates the current keys theft problem is proof-of-stake connectivity requirement. Validators are required to keep their staking keys online in order to sign transactions. The fact that these keys are always connected to the network means that they are a lot more vulnerable to being hacked or stolen. 
It doesn't matter if these staking keys directly control the funds behind the stakes or not. Those who gain control over the majority of these staking keys that belong to the active validator set will gain control over the minted blocks. Unforgeable Costliness, the unsung hero. Take a step back. Let's break down the secret behind Bitcoin's breakthrough innovation. There are three key ingredients. One, randomness. Two, unforgeable costliness. And three, incentives. One and two are aspects of proof-of-work mining, while three is embedded in the consensus code. One, randomness, falls into the realm of computer science and cryptography, while three, the incentives, falls into the realm of economics and game theory. Two, or unforgeable costliness, on the other hand, does not fit neatly into any discipline. The mental models required to understand two and why two matters come from a combination of different disciplines, such as archaeology, evolutionary psychology, economics, and even physics. Possibly due to this understudied nature of number two, many have dismissed it and massively underestimated its significance. Proof-of-stake protocol designers frequently make this mistake and consider only one and three in their designs. This is evident with Definity's obsession with randomness. Definity researchers think randomness is the key to solving everything. Ethereum Casper, on the other hand, is obsessed with incentives, going as far as coining a meaningless term, cryptoeconomics. Ethereum researchers think clever designs of incentives is the key to solving everything. The old saying, to a hammer, everything is a nail, is fitting in the proof-of-stake protocol design space. The reality is, unforgeable costliness might arguably be the most important component powering Bitcoin. Without unforgeable costliness, there is nothing new and disruptive about Bitcoin. In summary, Private keys attacks present a serious problem for proof-of-stake protocols. Losing majority control in proof-of-work, hash rate, is bad, but does not mean the system will fail completely. Whereas losing majority control in proof-of-stake, stake, strips the system totally naked and defenseless. Alright, and that concludes Part 2, Private Keys Attacks and Unforgeable Costliness, the Unsung Hero. Uh, again, this is by Hugo Huen. Uh, and uh, let's go ahead and hit our sponsor, and then we'll jump, jump into some commentary on this piece. All right. So again, this was uh, part two of Hugo Huen's um, Proof of Stake uh, a series here. And this is all about the private keys attack and the, the underlying, like, uh, really really fundamental uh, piece of this that is unforgeable costliness now i wanted to first go with what i think is a correction from what i said yesterday i think i actually misunderstood um how it works and i'll go ahead and just admit that i don't have uh, a very deep understanding of the specifics of proof of stake because a couple of the basic ideas of it like kind of turned me off so i haven't done a ton of research i have read the um uh, the white paper, or not the white paper, the consensus and 
uh, distributed consensus and proof of stake paper or something like that. Uh, Hugo links to it in this, I believe, or maybe the, maybe it was yesterday's that he had the link in it. I don't know. It's been a little while since I've read these. I've come back to these pieces. Um, but, uh, and also the, um, uh, oh man, I'm gonna have to look it up. Okay, it's called um, st On Stake and Consensus, and then the other one is Distributed Consensus from Proof of Stake is Impossible, which is just the original thing that the uh, the other is just an updated version of. Um, but the uh, what I was misunderstanding yesterday and totally explained wrong was that, um, and this is one of the let this was one of the lesser concerns anyway, uh, but that. Um, there was no single way to converge on one chain after a long partition. And that is not true that it is, it's actually very similar. It's, it's the one with the most stakes. So undeniably or, or invariably uh, one is going to have more uh, total stake than the other. Um, and they will want to converge. But if this reaches past a checkpoint, which is one, one of these problems is that, some of the solutions to the other problems cause a problem for that specific issue. So if let's say the partition was long enough that it you know passes a checkpoint or um, and uh, or the split was uh, persistent enough and it, it passes a checkpoint or it, it triggers some sort of punishment within some of these some of these algorithms or, or protocols that, attempt to enforce some sort of punishment for a deep partition or an alternate chain that goes too far back um, is that it basically it would basically provide uh, a huge incentive to create a permanent split because it would be two honest actor honest actors either being punished like one or the other based on which chain gets accepted um, and they would have the incentive to try to keep the make the split persistent so that they did not they were not the one that was punished for the the honest mistake rather than or the honest limitation um, rather than actually being malicious um, but the old private keys attack is uh, this is just a really interesting concept um, just that private past stakeholders because they can at any point because there's no real cost to the production of blocks is that one can always go back to an older part of the uh, older point in the chain in which they had the most stake where they had very um, high stake and then produce an entirely new chain from that point and that is if they continue to they don't have any stake they have you know the nothing at stake problem that um, they could have sold all of their uh, all of their stake and even more so is that you could have a situation where somebody gets a hold of old keys that used to have a huge balance I mean imagine if you sold your computer and or, or somebody sold their some computer you got access to somebody's computer whatever that had a wallet on it that used to have 10,000 Bitcoin in it but now it's empty now imagine that you've got that in a proof-of-stake system now you have a tool you have a weapon to um, essentially create a fake proof of stake chain to really mess with a uh, uh, with a network um, and possibly other users to trick other users into uh, it, and which 
uh, pr- pr- this sort of a problem is exacerbated by uh, users that are using SPV. They're using light clients and aren't checking much of the history and, uh, you know, are using some sort of a centralized service or whatever to get their, um, to get their version, to, to get what is the canonical chain to trust someone else with that information. Um, uh, this becomes a, you know, that becomes a big problem and, that's a that's not a good problem to have. Like you, you particularly over time, you need c- cumulative security. That's what proof of work actually does. The further back in the chain, the the infinitesimally smaller the any sort of an issue or a, any remote possibility of uh, producing an alternate chain uh, becomes because there's unforgeable costliness. There's a real cost to extending the chain. And at the same at the same time, you can't produce just an unlimited number of chains. Uh, but I, I I think I actually miss. I think it was less in pr- the previous episode that Hugo was implying that there wasn't a um, uh, a single way to fall back on a cha- on a single chain, but more that there wasn't a way to determine which one. It wasn't an objective way to determine which one was the canonical chain, whereas. Like, uh, because you can go so far back in the history. So, like, with proof of work, like, you're not going to have a fake chain or whatever that's, you know, a thousand blocks deep. It's just not going to happen. It's, it requires way too much cost, way too much proof of work. Um, but in proof of stake, you could easily have that problem. Um, and uh, and that presents an entirely new dynamic on, like, how we decide what the quote-unquote real chain is if somebody is you know, trying to basically give themselves back coins that they had already spent on the quote-unquote canonical chain and influence or keys. Um, but obviously some of these uh, have, uh, they move the, move the problem to a different place um, in, the, in the process, whether it be by checkpoints and, you know, creating centralization in that way. Uh, but there was a really interesting, uh, the, the one that I wanted to get to, I, I was trying to stay away from yesterday because I thought it applied more to today, and he mentions it in this article specifically, was the grinding attack. The, the ability to produce... The idea that a lot of this hinges on uh, randomness. So is the idea that the validators are not specifically chosen, but that, that there is something random in the protocol that is deciding... You know, in in Definity's case, the weight of certain stakers, but more importantly, just deciding who is going to be the one who who gets chosen as the stake the staker for the next block for continuing the chain. Well, see, because there's no cost to producing blocks, you can produce blocks in the same way that um, it's kind of like producing hashes. Like you you can actually have like a pseudo proof of work on tricking the randomness engine to pick you. So if you can produce in private a thousand blocks and um, uh, pick which one favors you the most, like so just like you're trying to hash and get something, get a hash that like looks a specific way, you know, has a vanity address or something like that, is that you can actually do that for proof of stake blocks to get the random generator to favor you over other parties. So the more stake you have, the easier it is to 
uh, to manipulate this problem. And because there's no real, there's no heavy cost to producing blocks, you can do this as many times as you want. And it's, it's an inherently centralizing thing. And this is something that you can do without really people knowing that you're doing it. You can just pick and choose whichever one is uh, most beneficial to you. Now, I don't know or have not heard of any, like, I, I don't even know how you would, that seems kind of fundamental. I don't know how you would mitigate something like that without, uh, you know, possibly adding in a new, like, the definity weight issue um, is, you know, makes, like, just like uh, Hugo mentions, it very possibly could make the some of the um, elements worse um, as far as, security concerns or assurances that any one person or any one malicious actor uh is going to have some sort of control over the over the actual network and more specifically like uh how much someone has to have to have um influence over the network but uh the participation really is this is like part of the issue that um somebody brought up recently i saw on a twitter thread was about how low the participation in some of these networks are and that that participation is also highly dependent on the the value and the inflation rate of the chain and because the stake is within the network it's the actual supposed money that you're having to stake it means that you can't use it that you're using the one asset or the one good that you can exchange for anything else. And staking is competing in that market for all of those other things that you can do with it. So DeFi, that's one of the things that this thread, I can't remember what it is, but if I find it, I'll link to it. I was talking about how DeFi could actually cause a huge problem and financial markets and financial derivatives on something on a proof of stake coin could present a huge problem for stake participation and stake participation is probably the greatest threat facing the proof of stake protocols so if you can if, since they have to give up the the alternative use case that uh, instead of uh, instead of staking, I'm going to loan it out over DeFi for you know eight percent or something like that. Now that they have to compete with that, uh, this really limits how much you're actually going to stake. It totally depends on what the inflation rate is and how much value there is in in that inflation. They have to choose between one. Whereas if you're talking about mining, you can't use the ASIC for everything anything else, and you have you have this huge sunk cost. And you can't reuse proof of work later. Like it's cum it's both cumulative in the network and it's done once you produce it. So you can't go back in time. I can't like use it, use it once for problem A and then just take the same one and use it for problem B. Like it's very specific to that one point in time, the the explicit information that was produced in that block, and then it's done. It's 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 created, and there's no going back. There's no reverse button in proof of work. You just have to do it over, uh, and because of that, there you you'll never have a problem. You have that degree of unforgeable costliness. You you have an undeniable in the physical world a stake that you have to produce that is outside of the chain. And so, so you don't you don't have all of these threats or uh, concerns with someone using their stake within the chain to since since it's only 
since you're trying to use your stake to decide which history is the real one and uh, that stake is explicitly in the history, well, then you would, the whole point it is, is that somebody does a conflicting history that values their stake, that, that, put, that gives them the advantage so that it just changes where the problem is but doesn't get rid of the problem. And that's what I really think is a lot at, at play here is that proof of stake has a couple of fundamental problems and they just keep shuffling it around to different locations. But they're fundamental and you just can't get around it without some sort of real cost. And I think Hugo is right in this piece. And this is, this is one of the key things that I wanted to get to for reading the whole all three of these pieces is that unforgeable costliness is such an important part and possibly the most important of the three as to what makes Bitcoin a hard asset, what makes it a, uh, you know, you have incredibly high assurances that it will not be edited, that its history is set in stone. There is a real solid amber being created around this thing and getting thicker and harder with time. And you can look at it and you can verify it and you can know it. And this applies to anybody who is joining the network, anybody who has been offline for years even and wants to join back into the network. And you don't have to trust the current state or the current businesses or, you know, the current, you don't have to trust the node that you're connecting to. If you have, after the bootstrapping, after you've got the software that you trust, um, you pick your your software determines what the valid chain is and the degree of ambiguity and confusion in that process is significantly less because of that unforgeable costliness you do not have to question which one cost more to produce like what chain what, what chain did the entire is the entire world the entire network following what's the canonical chain and you don't have to you don't have to choose between 20 different chains uh, because there is such a huge cost. The likelihood of having even two chains to pick between is extremely low. But with proof of stake, as particularly as a new user, there's no telling. Like if you get man in the middle, like you could have uh, an entire alternate chain that you connect to and you do not know um, because there's no, there's no actual cost. And, you know, it's, I probably would have put unforgeable costliness, personally, if you had just, like, asked me. I would have thought of it, I think, as an economic thing. Um, but it's kind of funny that he brings up that it doesn't, like, really fit into any specific discipline. It's kind of like a combination of things. And I hadn't quite thought of that, but that's actually pretty true. Um, again, again, I would have said, oh, yeah, probably economics or whatever. But it is a, it is a element or it is specifically an element of physics that proves it, that, that it is, you know, like it's a limitation of physics. So if physics changes, well, then the economics changes. Um, but, uh, and then it is a huge part of evolutionary psychology. Uh, granted, I would maybe put that in with economics. I think, I think economics applies. It's, it's different maybe, uh, but I think economics applies to just life in general. So I think, I think you could make an argument that evolutionary psychology and economics are, are very similar 
It's just this is one that is not economic specifically in a trade economy, but economics in nature. And all life has economics. You know, like if if there's a hundred, you know, dinosaurs that all eat one plant specifically, and then there is just one one of those plants left, uh, well, then the cost of obtaining that plant could be death. Like the cost is very high because supply and demand still applies. And it applies to thinking, choosing beings, to those two living creatures, but nonetheless, it applies. So um, that, that was an interesting thing that I hadn't quite thought of, um, and I had kind of forgotten about. It's been a long time since I've read these pieces. But a lot of the reason that I bring this up now, um, or at this point, is just because of what Ethereum is going through right now, and the constant back and forth as to whether or not they're actually going to switch over to proof of stake. Um, and there's so many times like, like at the, really the core of this is I think we're constantly seeing what the results of this are. And the DAO is a great example. The, the, the increasingly limited amount of stake that's happening. There's a number of these chains that I've just kind of in general passing. We'll see not many people stake. Um, and, uh, this is not. It's not uncommon to see less than half of the people staking that are actually there to stake. It just doesn't doesn't happen. Some people just buy it. They're just speculating or whatever. Exchanges don't always stake. Uh, uh, you know, some of these chains is like a tiny percentage of people actually staking on the chain. And that gives an incredible amount of power to the people who are staking. Um, and, and really, and just like you talked about with the power law distribution, we should expect that. Uh, which is why the the system, the security system, or the the assurance system that we build on top of these things, or, or that these things are built with, excuse me, uh, should take that into account. That there's an incredibly well-funded adversary, or like, it, it needs to plan for the worst-case scenarios. It just does, and because uh, eventually they will exist, they, they will happen. So anyway, I just thought this was a, a fun continued discussion. I want to have something about proof of stake. Uh, and I was a little bit, uh, and actually what made me think of it, um, cause I was just kind of rambling, uh, in yesterday's episode, but somebody, there's actually a user online that pointed out that I was wrong. Who was it? I just like to share it out. Where is it? I can't find it. Crypto Rancher, Crypto Rancher. Here we go. Yeah. Um, uh, that, yeah, that proof of work nodes only have the ability to self-organize, but proof of stake works the exact same way, uh, unless you're referring to the obsolete proof of stake protocols, in which case it's time to research better projects. Uh, so I appreciate them, uh, pointing that out for me, uh, just because sometimes I rant and it's not hard to say the incorrect things, particularly with proof of stake. I am not, uh, extremely well versed in it. So uh, yeah, with that, uh, we'll close out the episode here. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Again, this was Hugo Huynh's, uh Proof of Stake, Private Keys Attack, and Unforgeable Costliness, The Unsung Hero. Um, and we will be hitting into the last one uh, tomorrow, I believe. Um, I've actually got an idea that I... Uh, there's a, something just came up yesterday afternoon after I posted the episode... 
And it is something that I really want to hit on. And I think I've got a really great piece that goes along with it. One that I've been sitting on for a while and waiting for a good opportunity. And it might make a good holiday post. Um, so uh, I don't know. I I'll see. I need to be prepared. I'm trying to get prepared here for I know what's going to be a week where I don't have. I can't really sit down in front of my mic. But I want to keep having content out for you guys. So I'm doing what I can. I got a couple in the bag and uh, they should be out soon. So don't forget to subscribe. Lots of stuff to come. As always, I'm not going anywhere. I am Guy Swan and this is The Crypto Economy. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to share this show out with everybody you know in the Bitcoin and crypto economy space. Help spread the audible of all things Bitcoin. And until next time, take it easy, guys.